Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. Quilting is not only does it have like that amazing history, but I love you bring quilting to such another level. It's comfort. And it's also painful and poignant, and it's everything at once. It's all the stories. And I was looking, I was like, how does she do that? There's layers and layers to your quilts. I just wanted to say it's so powerful. It really evokes like every emotion, everything. Thank you. I notice each of your pieces are entirely unique. They might be like from a different era. Or it might be like a different region. It might, there's so many uniquenesses about your pieces. When you first pick a piece, like what happens to you? You're talking about how other people respond to your work. I think I'm just like a connoisseur of art and photographs. You know, I'm as much a fan of other people's artwork and photography It's so gorgeous, black and white photographs, like vintage photos. When I see images from the past, I'm always so interested, you know, like who are those people? And there's so many photographs of black Americans that are just labeled Negro so-and-so. It'll say like where they're from. It'll say like Negro boys playing Pittsburgh. And it's just interesting that perspective because when I look at it, I just see boys playing, you know, but it's, it always has to have like, just in case you can't see that, they, that these people are black, I needed to put Negro boys playing. And so it's always like that other. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by who were these boys for real? I start looking at their facial expressions. I'm looking at their clothing. There are certain images that will arrest me and make me want to create them. I saw a photo of Frederick Douglass when he was young. Like, I think I looked up the date. First of all, you know, you think of Frederick Douglass with his like woolly fro, but he had waves, like waves and Mm -hmm. curls and was super handsome. And I was like, okay, who is this Frederick Douglass? He had this fancy cravat and like this nipped in waistcoat. And I could see Paisley on the coat and the tie looked like maybe it was checkered or checks. So this mix of fabrics, I'm like, there's this whole other side of Frederick Douglass that we are not getting. Like the dapper, suave guy with all this swag and attitude. And then he had the intelligence to go with it. And he's staring into the camera. When I looked it up, this is before he was, I don't know if he was ever granted his freedom. I think he went to London and um, Scotland to get lawyers to help him legally deserve to be free. But when the photo was taken, he was still a fugitive. And he's staring into the camera with this conviction. it's just remarkable because we don't really have people like that now. Or I should say that we do, but I don't know them, put it that way. 
people who have gone through spending 25 years as an enslaved person and not being able to know who your father is. He was a slave on the plantation and he stayed in his grandmother's cabin. His mother would walk like sometimes four miles at night to see him, just to see her little boy, but he never saw her in the daylight. So looking at this guy as this like dapper, suave, sexy dude, I I just was like, how did I miss that? And then I felt like that is a piece that I have to make a quilt of. And that is such a stunning and powerful piece. I feel like when the viewer looks at it, it challenges, just like the what you're sharing about his life, it challenges the history we think we know about him. Exactly. It always starts with me as my own curiosity and then attraction to beauty and me looking at these textures. Um, I feel compelled. And I mean, his particular photo... Frederick Douglass had those photos made to disseminate so that people could see that a Black man can be a fully formed man in a human being. And that was his publicity campaign, not just for his freedom, but saying like Black people are real people. So I could see why the image was so arresting, because that purpose that it was used for, like it wasn't just a glamour shot. That was his poor people's campaign, you know, this, the slaves campaign for humanity. And I enjoy diving into subjects like that and then really getting into his fabrics. What, what are the fabrics that I want to use to express him? Like maybe I want to use velvet in his hair so you can get the idea of the gloss and the smoothness. And I love that fabric evokes for all of us, memories. So when you look at velvet, you have a memory of when you touched velvet or when you saw it, when it was used. Or when you wear it, you know how it feels, how it makes you feel. I mean, I'm such an emotional dresser. So every day I put on my outfit, like like what I want to feel, or it's not my armor, but sometimes my armor. So I feel like they come alive because you know what it feels like, like viscerally. Yes. I can imagine when you said that, the way velvet slips. And then if you felt silk velvet versus, you know, like polyester velvet, the difference, like that silk velvet, it makes you feel so opulent. (laughs) Yes. Oh, the harder velvet just makes you feel so put together, like you're ready. Oh, yes. I feel packed in. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, exactly. That's exactly what I wanted to say, packed in. (laughs) I find quilting always so powerful because even if you just have like this one piece of your work that's from that fabric, that fabric evokes memories in every single person and that gets put into the quilt. And that is always to me like one of the powers of quilts. My my girlfriend was from the, when I was across the border in then Swaziland, and she was in the early Boputatswana. We were like family, and it was a big deal for us to visit each other. We had to go through borders. Uh, armed guards would 
uh, just take apart everything I had and follow me all the way to her house. And it was this big deal. So, And then she got a job and moved somewhere else, and I was dismissing her. <laughs> she made a quilt. And I still have it here, but has pieces from different places that we were together. And so when you see the quilt, of course, you're just like, oh, what a beautiful piece of work. But actually, I just go, hmm, <laughs> you know, I've got it all. All of those experiences in that, in that quilt, I think there's an energy there that people feel. And I suppose maybe that's also, you know, why people cry when they look at my artwork. One of the things that sort of like make me made me like perk up to you was in that last conversation that we were having on that panel that we were on together where you were talking about how you were really drawn to this one photo of that gentleman. And mm -hmm. you just thought it was a random photo. You weren't sure who he was. And then as you were working on him, if you could say that story. <laughs> so I saw this photo of this handsome guy standing on a harbor or like you could see like a steamship behind him um he was african-american and he had on these glasses and at the bottom it was just scrawled emmett scott the liberian commission and i know liberia how you know it was formed well i guess that area would say i would say it was colonized <laughs> so that african-americans could be repatriated and live in africa I think it originally, they started that maybe not long after slavery was abolished, let's say like 1880s. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder if he worked with Marcus Garvey and Back to Africa movement. But I was just working. Like I didn't take the time to look up who Emmett Scott was, except for that was his name. So I was like, well, let me just look up the Liberian Commission. Let me see what that was like for Black Americans who are suddenly back on African soil after, like, I don't know when their ancestors were brought to the U.S., but let's say 50 to 100 years separated from that culture. Were they able to just, like, suddenly just be African? Or I found out, no, they, they weren't, no. They separated themselves and kind of subjugated the native African people who were there. But anyway, I made the quilt and I was using African fabrics and really getting into it. And I created the image of his face and I just started getting this feeling from it that I usually don't get, like negative feeling. And I was like, I don't, this is strange. Like, I feel like this person does not want me to make this quilt. Like he already had kind of a haughty look on his face, which I liked, but then it, it was just, it was like turning on me. I don't know. So I went to bed that night. And when I got up the next morning, I told my husband, I'm like, so strange, but I feel like this quilt, this person, like their spirit does not want me to make the quilt. And he looked at it and he was like, you know, it's like, it looks, he didn't really tap into that. He was like, it looks good. Like, I think you put all this effort into it, you should just keep going. He was like half done up to his waist, I think. So I finished it and he was originally holding like a stack of papers and just kind of like random bunch of papers that I was like, no, I don't want to just have papers in his hand because even as, a, as an artwork, 
it's just not going to look like anything. So I was like, well, I think I'll put a newspaper in his hands. That looks like he has these spectacles that kind of just rest on the bridge of your nose. There are no the things that go around your ears. That part is not mm-hmm. there. So I'm like, oh, this guy is super dapper because who walks around with spectacles like that? You clearly can't have a job of labor because they won't stay on. And he also had a three-piece suit. He had the vest and then he had the papers. So I made it a newspaper and I decided to use um, a Marcus Garvey title of the paper, which I think it was called the Negro Journal. The title was Africa, the Land of Hope and Promise for the Negro Peoples of the World. That was just the title of the paper for that day. So I put it in his hands. After I finished it, it was completely sewn. I was like, you know what? Let me just try again. Can I find anything on Emmett Scott? And I realized that I had spelled Emmett with an I instead of an E, the way his was. And there was all this stuff on him. He was the Secretary of Negro Affairs under Woodrow Wilson. He was Booker T. Washington's right-hand man. Booker T. Washington and Marcus Garvey were like arch enemies because Marcus Garvey believed that Black people should not assimilate and go back to Africa and do our own thing. And Booker T. Washington felt that Black people should stay in this country and assimilate and become and fight for their full American citizenship. Uh, That Emmett Scott worked his way up from being a janitor to editing his own newspaper. He had his own newspaper. So I realized like after, this is a disapproval. This learned man is like looking at like, look at this little ignorant girl. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm glad that I was compelled to put a newspaper in his hands, but it wasn't his paper. Uh, That was the first time that I felt that energy and that he wasn't an unknown person. I just didn't do my research properly. You have such a gift with conveying a comprehensive view, just like you were sharing. When you were growing up, did you particularly gravitate towards certain stories like people's biographies? Yes, definitely with my grandmother. That's where the love of vintage photos, um, her name was Violet, and she was this Catholic girl from New Orleans, um, a Black Creole person, and I would sit next to her, and she would, the other kids would be like rampaging through the backyards, because all the grandkids would be being babysat by my grandmother, especially in the summers. I loved to just have her tell me who was who. There was this photo of a woman Some of them had names um, written in pencil. Some of the pencil had faded and she had this corset on and I guess it was like Victorian era. She had a lace gown, all lace with long gloves up to her, like past the elbow. And her hair was kind of up in this bouffant. And I was like, grandma, well, who was that? And then she said, oh, that's, that's Mammy Round Yonder. And I was like, well, who... I never called anybody Mammy. I grew up in New Jersey and my father's African and my mother grew up in Morocco. So I just wasn't exposed to Mammy as a term. I thought that was her name. And we also didn't say around yonder for like around the corner. 
So I thought that was all one name, like Mammy Round Yonder. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. So good. I was like, well, what's her real name? And she was like, no, she didn't remember. Or maybe she never knew because she was a little girl. But that's, I think, when I started being curious about this beautiful, elegant woman, what life did she lead? And then also so curious about my grandmother's Southern roots that I only knew her as the woman who had lived in Morocco for 20 years and she was a grandmother. But what about this young Violet, this Creole gal who calls her Aunt Mammy and says things like she lives around yonder? That spurred a lot of curiosity in me. I think it's so interesting because I feel like all three of us kind of have these things in common in the sense that you see what other people don't see and then you bring those things out and then you present them in a whole new way where people could see them now. Like the little things that you see or the way that you were as a kid, like like you said, all the other kids were playing in the backyard, but you were the one that was looking at photos or even the <laughs> fact that you were just curious right now about why was it always in pencil? You know, it's like you're still, you're just like, that's just how you think, but it's 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 how you see the world and how you see those things and then how you want to tell those stories. It's always that curiosity. Now that you've become so acknowledged and renowned as an artist, and also you're an artist, but you're an activist in your art and through your art, like the awareness can't escape the viewer of the truth behind those stories. Are there things that you wish people saw in your work that they haven't yet or they haven't unpacked yet? Do you get to share everything that you want to reveal? I feel like art is so revealing that it's a window whether you want people to know or not. There's probably more things about me that I don't want revealed. I don't know if I use um, this one fabric with these birds on it. Um, in Africa, they call it Air Afrique. So I'm using that fabric to talk about being global and flying from place to place or travel in the 60s with Pan Am. But someone else looking at my piece is going to see something in there that maybe I don't want people to know that, I don't know, that maybe my parents struggled or didn't end up staying married. Just things like that that are like unintentional, but they are in there if you've suffered a loss or if I've suffered a loss. Somebody will see that in the piece. And that's not even what the piece was about at all, but mm -hmm. they're able to get it. I did a quilt of a woman and her daughter. And I was thinking about my stepmother who was ill at the time. She was, she was in hospice, but at home. So we were just, the family had gathered and, and I was just working on this piece of the mother and the daughter. And I decided to call it Dear Mama, sort of like thinking about her. I didn't want to make a quilt of her because it was just too raw. I just wanted to focus on this other mother and her daughter. And then I stitched the lyrics to Tupac's song, Dear Mama, behind her just mm -hmm. to... Um, reinforce that this piece is about the love of mothers. Actually, it's the, the love that a child has for their mother. His lyrics, you know, no woman alive can take mama's place. 
Uh, Mom, don't you know I appreciate you? A lot of people, when they saw it, they said, oh, it's a letter from a daughter to her mom. Like, they still were able to suss out, even though I deliberately did not make it like me and my mom or me and my stepmom. We talk about this all the time about how there's who we are and what we are. And I feel like you can't escape the what. It's hard to describe, you know, like I can tell you who I am in the world so easily. I'm like, I'm a designer. I'm so-and-so's daughter. I'm Persian. I'm this, I'm that. But the what we are is, you know, it's like there's a million quilters. Why are you who you are? How is it that your work has but it's because of that what, it's your soul that you put into it. And I think that's the cool thing. It's like, it's inescapable. It's like that, it's what it contains. It's the true value of anything, you know? I love that. Yeah. I taught for 13 years. And like you're saying, the what, not who you want to present, but what you really are, what makes you like, I would see that in my students all the time. If if they were going through a hard time, there's just no way that it's not going to come out in your artwork or if they're really struggling. I was teaching them how to draw a, a human figure, just any human figure and talking about the proportions of the body and how, you know, if you fold your arm like that, like how it's equal from elbow to shoulder, from hand to shoulder, like we're pretty symmetrical beings for the most part. And so then I had everybody sketch themselves. And this one guy, he was really a big guy, at least maybe 6'2". He may not have even been a senior. He was just a really big kid. But when he drew himself, he drew a little tiny person. And it wasn't my job to try to like delve in. Why did you draw yourself like this but that's the way he saw himself so it was so revealing like something is not that it's wrong but some things are going on here that I wasn't aware of until I asked him to draw himself well yeah and then you see people that are so small but that take up so much space yes (laughs) that are huge and you're just like how how is it that you take up this much space We're not just physical beings. That power that's emanating out of this person, Mm. well beyond their size, but we're all responding to it. I I was just going to say how incredibly fortunate were those children that had you as their teacher because you see that. You see what they are instead of what's presented to the outer world. And I feel like very few children can report that experience with their teachers. The children are trying to fit into the syllabus and then trying to fit into the social structure and then deal with what's happening at home. And nobody anywhere is identifying what they are so that they can have enough faith in themselves to keep on going and and put it forward. Bisa, did you... Did you feel like you were seen as a child? Like, did you have that experience or did you have to sort of find, like, see yourself at some point? Um, my parents were really attentive. I was the youngest and my brother was like wild child number one. Like, 
this was early 80s, so he would like sneak out and go to the Roxy Palladium, like this is early hip hop. And that was considered bad, you know, in those days, well, to sneak out, but also hip hop itself was considered garbage music. He liked to um, draw like graffiti style, and that was considered vandalism, break dancing, because you would do that like before school and maybe maybe the bell rang and you were late. It was all considered bad. And then my sister is one year older than me, actually less than a year. And she was a peacemaker. She's um, she's a social worker now. So she was always like the glue. When I came along, I just think they were allowing me to just be me. And my mother was very much like into alternative lifestyles early on. She was the one who was raised in Morocco. So she was sort of She was raised as a Catholic, but finding herself drawn to Islam. So she was early vegetarian before, like, you could buy a veggie patty. She had to make, Mm. like, our veggie patties and substitutes for eggs and substitutes for cheese. And, oh, we hated it so much. Me and my sister, we just just wanted to be like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And my hair was my mother, like, sprinkling, like, spirulina on a (laughs) pumpernickel sandwich. And our friends had (laughs) ham and cheese. But I feel that my mother's seeking and openness was allowing me to just be me. Like she would lay on the grass with us. But my father was a college president and he was for 40 years. So they divorced, obviously, because things are not aligning. But between them, I feel like I had both parents who were really like just allowing me to be myself. I would love to just hear about where you grew up just because I know I you grew up in the same neighborhood that Lauren Hill did. And I just feel like anytime she's spoken about it with me, it just sounds like this magical pocket in New Jersey of like affluent families that are black and brown and like It's almost like the United Nations, it feels like. Like she talks about all these different influences she has from like her teachers. And then it just seems so intergenerational. Like you and her brother were at school at the same time. And then you ended up teaching, like being the teacher to three of her kids. And it just feels like this place that I yearn for, but I've never actually experienced outside of a TV show. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it it definitely is one of these towns where, I don't know if it was a planned community, but sort of reminded me of like Columbia, Maryland, where they deliberately tried to have certain numbers of Black, White, Latino, Asian, although I don't think it was planned. South Orange and Maplewood were originally, I think, like Irish and just say like standard American white. And then Jewish people moved in. And so the town was at least probably 75% Jewish. Black and brown people moved in. So I think that the town having so such a high number of Jewish families made it that it wasn't like the standard American town. Like the bagel shop is where everybody went. And there were probably just as many temples in town as there were churches. And then Jewish people who moved into that town in the 60s were those 
some of them, like my friend's parents and my father too, his best friends are Jewish, but they're Black pe uh, Jewish people who were part of the civil rights movement and saw themselves as allies with and aligned with other people who were being excluded from the American dream. Not saying like that nobody was racist because there are plenty of racist people, but that openness allowed for more Black families to feel comfortable living there and raising their children. And the school, like Columbia High School, where we all went, is I think it's 50-50 now. But when we were growing up, it was probably still like 75-25. Being so close to New York, you had a lot of parents who worked in the arts industries. So they were all these creative type people in this place. And there was a big push to always make sure that our curriculum and extracurriculum was integrated. It was, it was a good place to grow up. And I feel like, and also SZA graduated from that high school too. If you give kids what they need, then they will do well, <laughs> you know? Really, really, really rare. And I really enjoyed my time there. And I feel like, you know, it's always a work in progress and there's always gonna be issues. But if people are trying, then it will be better and the kids will do better. It's so true. And even just the idea of like if kids grow up exposed to all children, there is no way you're going to ever be able to divide them after that. And they also the good thing was the economic diversity, too. So like you have like this huge stratification of wealth, but that's good. Because then that means that your kid is going to end up playing soccer with this other kid whose family is on assistance and this other kid's family is billionaires, but they're teammates. And that's so important. But I love how that kind of returns us, restores us to the theme of what you are will always come through as when you spend time in everyone's home, wealth, all the way to struggling, the what people are is what endures. That's why you keep going there. By this time in your life, is there something you thought you would have seen or you would have done by now, but it hasn't happened? I think I would have seen more of the world by now. Hmm. You know, I've always wanted to go to Bali and I want to go to Mecca and not necessarily to make the Hajj, I just want to go to Mecca. Um, I feel like there's so much of the world that I have not seen. And all of the, most of the South Sea Islands, like Tonga, places like that. I just figured, because I'm going to be 50 in two years. And I just would have thought I would have done that already. I want to see more and learn more about different peoples, but I want to see it for myself. You know, I want to stay in a yurt in the desert. And I just, I just want to go to New Zealand, like just places like that, that I, I consider far off. I thought I would have seen them already. Wait, you said that there's things, there's so many things you want to do still too. What, what else do you want to do? I think that was mostly like, it's the travel thing. I don't know. Like, not that I would eat like roasted scorpions, but there's things <laughs> I've heard about like mud baths in Iceland and things like that, I feel like. And my mother and her sisters were so much more cosmopolitan as they were back and forth to Morocco, to the U.S. Um, 
the things that they did, like, um, they did actually, like, go to, uh, what was it? One of the princesses in Morocco, they all have their own homes. They don't live together. And so the prince, one of the princesses who was their friend, Lala Neza, had a big party in the desert. And the king of Morocco was there. And I think this was the 60s, Haley Selassie was there. Wow. And they got to meet him. And like, so I grew up with these fantastical tales of their lives that sound like Arabian Nights. And I never had that life. I just lived like in New Jersey. So I feel like I thought I would have been doing and going and doing those things that I envisioned what adult life was going to be like. How many kids do you have? I have two girls. My oldest daughter is the one who's obsessed with you. Aww. <laughs> I mean, she's 26. And I was like, I'm going to be on a chat and Melody Asani's on the chat. She's like, oh my God, please tell her I love her. <laughs> and then my other daughter is 22 and she's a student at Pratt Institute. They're actually both at Pratt. Temi went back to get her master's in arts and Santi is a undergrad in the printmaking program. Hmm. Well, Bisa, it sounds like your life, the fantastical part of your life is just, starting I mean you you know it's like you design children like that's been your those were your quilts like yes you you quilted two beautiful children and now you get to quilt all over the world I'm sure it's just going to open up especially since your work has really just blown up so much I mean you were a teacher four years ago that's crazy that's such a quick trajectory so I'm sure your work is going to take you all over the place and you're going to be with the equivalent of Haley Selassie and you're going to be like whatever (laughs) I can't wait to go home to New Jersey (laughs) yeah you're just going to be like this is what it was all right cool I did that yes I'm really I'm looking forward to the second half of life and I guess as I get older too, I'm just like really embracing that. I'm loving seeing, yesterday at the Armory, I saw Richard Mayhew, who's 97 years old. And he was there at his exhibit, like had a solo booth at Armory and he was chatting with people. And I was just like, you know what? This is, I love that. Like, that's what I want. I want to be 97 one day and still chatting with people at my exhibit. You will be. I feel like you will be. I mean, I love how we started started it off with your friend who's 73. I mean, that oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. inspired me so much because my mom is in her 70s and is an artist. And oh, wow. She's been wanting to do a show forever. She's just yeah. never gathered the courage or the time. And she thinks she's too old. And no. her time has passed. And I keep trying to encourage her. But yes, please tell her about my friend Dinga McCannon. I'll send it yes, to you. Please. But she just got signed, like, I don't think it's been a year, maybe six months ago. Yeah, no, that's so inspiring. I mean, I talk about, I was just talking about this recently, how we're so obsessed with youth culture that we've really put our elderly in a, in a place. Like, it's almost as if we've assigned them to a place they don't belong. And these last two years especially have been so hard 
for a lot of older people. But I, I think our generation is going to change that when we get old or as we get old. As we get old. I hope so. I mean, Beyonce is 40, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening. And actually, I do feel like the arts have the most open doors because, you know, people don't want someone to stop creating. You know, their contributions are so valued. Yeah. I mean, Julie's dad is 95. Seven. He had a big show last year. Oh my gosh. I need, please send me the information. Well, this year he's not showing anywhere. In fact, this has been a really breaking year because of what's happening in the world and being disconnected. But nevertheless, that whole thing, uh, you know, no matter what I share with him and show him, he's like, wait, let me look a little closer. What kind of design is that? What kind of, you know? I love that. Where is he? He's in Chicago here. Oh, wow. We're so lucky. Yeah. Oh, so With his girlfriend. He has a girlfriend. What? <laughs> <laughs> Who's also 90. How old is she? 97. <laughs> oh, well, see, this is what life is about. Yes. Yes. I know. Yes. When she tells yes. me about her dad and his girlfriend just rolling around doing all their things, <laughs> I was like, yes. Yeah. I send pictures to Melody because uh, my husband and I, we're there a lot. And and um, my husband, Ra, has been designing a new t-shirt line, a, a new, actually just like thought wear, I guess I would call it. And um, every time he designs something new, my dad's like, bring those designs over. I need to take a look at those. <laughs> the beauty continues. We'll be hanging out when we're 97, Bisa. Yes. we can And our be- sweatsuits. And- yes. <laughs> Melody, please make more, make more that's relevant at the time. I don't know what that will be, but. Yes. In a year, in a lu- luxury, a luxury birth, though. I can't do, I need a glam. I need a proper glam with electricity. True. True, true, true. We need all Yeah, But I feel like I'm going to switch when I'm older. Like I've been wearing sweatsuits and like dressing like a little boy basically my whole life. And then I feel like once I hit 50, I'm going to start like, I'm going to start coming with it. Oh my gosh. I love it. Can I see your nails? I know they're beautiful. Oh yeah. They're always sweet. Incredible. Oh my god! I'm so inspired. You're so yeah. sweet. Yes, I love. They're it. like my little canvas. I need. Yeah. They make me so happy every time I look down. I'm like, I could be wearing literally like a trash bag, but if my nails are done, I feel like I'm good. It's something about it. It's those that polishing. Because then if it's a trash bag, it's like, this was deliberate, actually. Yes. My nails are done. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. As long as I have my jewelry and my nails done, I yeah. feel like I have my whole life together. Yes. <laughs> I love it. My hands are always a mess, but I admire nicely done hands. Well, you're always working with your hands. Yeah. I have the worst hands. I think I wanted to, I was thinking about making a, a line of pretty gloves. <laughs> like, let's bring that back. Gloves. <laughs> you should, <laughs> please. <gasps> and can I say your outfit, Melody, that you wore to your friend's wedding, you looked so beautiful. Like, I didn't see your own wedding photos, but damn, 
I just say about everything from head to toe is just absolutely perfect. Oh, you're so sweet. Like the dress. What were the fringes made out of? Your friend, she's Native American, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. That wasn't my dress. That oh, was an, my gosh. That was an outfit that she, that's like a traditional Native outfit that she actually handmade. Oh, oh, my God. Yeah, she handmade it. Was it bone or what? Yes, it's elk teeth. Damn. In Native American culture, elk teeth have like, it's like very, it's like the highest amount of prominence you could put on an outfit and actually her wedding dress the entire thing was all elk teeth and they've been collecting them for years like they'll literally just trade stuff for it for elk teeth it's amazing I mean that that whole I would love for you to go down there and just spend a week with them because the craftsmanship and the artistry and like talk about symbolism and stories and meaning like every single thing is like woven into everything and they spend years making those outfits years wow I could tell there's no way that you could drill a hole in like a thousand elk teeth and then stitch them on something that no. would not take a short amount of no. time and the incredible part is that so I went there a few years ago because I wanted to do, we were, we were going to work on a project together and I thought I was going to be working with mm-hmm. the women because I thought the women mm-hmm. did the beating and it's not true. There's actually even more men that do the work. Yes. They all do it. It's not, they all do it. That's they shocking. all do it and they're all, it's incredible. So that my friends who are a married couple, they do it together, which is the sweetest thing. So when they're working on something one of them will work on like one half of the vest and the other one will work on the other half. And it just, it melts your whole heart. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like you're saying, it's the craftsmanship, the materials and what it means to them. It just, I'm looking at it on the screen and I just know that I'm just getting the tip of the iceberg, but it was just magic. Just the tip. Yes. Oh, I know. Even like I was sending Julie pictures the whole time because they would make these like beautiful fans made out of hawk feathers and then they would describe the meaning of the the hawk and their feathers and like then there's eagle feathers and then it's like everything is a ritual and I I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago but there's just so much spirit they they so effortlessly incorporate spirit into everything that they do Whereas here where we try to separate it out or we try to box ourselves into these box like, oh, I'm, I'm neutral or, you know, that's my practice. My practice is separate. Like my spiritual practice is separate. It's like, how do you leave that out of the room when you're working on your craft? It's the creator. I love how um, in their culture, what, what is so many peoples of the world which is that spiritual means encompassing nature. And here, this is the only place in the world where when we call something spiritual, it might be something man-made and other have nothing to do with nature. Oh, isn't that something? It's true. I feel like in America, people have used it as a means to an end. Like there's so many devices for religion where it's like a means to control people or, you know, it's always had, had an agenda. Whereas when you go to, you know, 
continents like Africa or South America or, you know, anywhere else, it's, there's no means to an end. It's just about, it's a relationship. It's about the relationship. And I feel like you understand that the relationship goes up first and then out. And that's how you maintain the out is by going up first. Yeah. So our, our disconnectedness here, well, you can see what the consequences are. You know, mm-hmm. we just had this huge flood in New Jersey. The climate, yes. the climate's changing and just it's going to pull us apart. And can I also say, how is it, Melody, that you look like them, too? I know that was crazy. I don't. Your peoples are from other sides of the planet, right? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's our perception, but not true. Mm-hmm. You know, how we think about ethnicity, mm-hmm. how we think about race, nationality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the marble. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's funny. I I also think when you're, I don't know, it's funny, my auntie, um, lived in Uganda for like 50, 60 years. I mean, she, and she considered herself Ugandan and her husband was Ugandan and all her, all her children look like you, you know, they don't look like Persian at all. Mm-hmm. And, um, nobody thought she was not African, but she looked like me. Right. Everybody thought she was an African woman. And when people, when she told people otherwise, they wouldn't, believe her they didn't even understand (laughs) they They didn't understand it they're like no you're you're one of us and I feel like the problem is the marble like we've 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 categorized it's like you have to pick one but our what we are the what we are is the same this is just my vehicle you know this is just my temporary vehicle that's going to go back into this earth one day and then I'm going to carry on. <laughs> but is here to tell the story of its life experiences. This vehicle is everything. You know, now we just need to pay honor and tribute to each person. I imagine we will eventually have contact with beings outside of our known universe. And they're probably going to think it's really weird that we are categorizing ourselves based on our color skin color, hair texture, features. They're going to be like, what? Like, Yeah. Oh my God. Julie and I have been talking about this. I love, Bisa, I love, love, love you're bringing that up because, you know, I don't know anything more than anybody else, but um, that was something in my near-death experiences sort of touched on about that it's we, we keep calling aliens, but it's, it's us. <laughs> We are them. They are us. If we can't even handle skin skin color, how in the world are we going to adapt to other environments that create? We only change color, bone structure, everything to adapt. The same with creatures on other planets, life on other planets. And they are us. Yeah. Well, what kills me is that I feel like there's so many civilizations that have come and like completely been wiped off. Like I'm, I'm obsessed with Egyptian civilization. I love studying it and mm-hmm. talk about stories. Like I look at those images and that artwork and my brain just 
goes all over the place with stories. Like I think about even somebody like Nefertiti, who's, whose likeness has lasted this long, even though we really don't know anything about her. Like why, what, what was, what was she about? Why was she so powerful? Was she little? Was she big? Was, you know, all the right. things like, oh, I just like, it's my favorite thing to just imagine what that was like, you know, like, because they talk about what she smelled like and they created these like rituals around oh, wow. the way she bathed and, you know, her, the makeup, yeah. like all of it, you know, but it's, it's so crazy to me because um, it's like this people's have been wiped off the planet before like why yes and why do we think like we can't be wiped off if we don't treat the planet properly because I'm confident that the planet will regenerate itself and survive but it's going to kick us off if we don't act right I definitely we're not no (laughs) and we're not I mean like you said the Egyptians their society lasted a lot longer than ours did already thousands and thousands of years longer than we probably will. It just, and their things endured that ours probably won't. Well, who knows what will endure? It'll be like a cup of noodles carton or something. But like, Some styrofoam. <laughs> it'll be something really weird that will, and they'll be like, what is this object? But I think about Egyptian society, the things that was left, but then you see those images of like the giant light bulbs and little toys that look like a helicopter and gliders. So there are things that were not left that are just gone. So that knowledge is just lost. Yes. So much was lost. Even things that like we forget that the land masses underneath the ocean were on top of the ocean and had civilizations on them. So We've been here at this so many times. To me, that's the humbling lesson. Why wouldn't that be enough for us to just each person want to be all about why we're here? Why am I here? How can I make this place? I think a lot of people are responding to it, but a lot are not. It's not enough. And then we have so much need in the world. You know, there's so many people who just don't, even have their basic needs met it's not sustainable it's not and then you have somebody like jeff bezos that has more than he could possibly ever use it within like ever ever no the extremes are getting more extreme which is such a symptom of we're going to hell in a handbasket it's not a good symptom (laughs) No. Sometimes I look at simple things like just dogs, you know, like they're like sniffing around and enjoying themselves. And I wonder if a dog could like look at people and they'd be like, what is their deal? Mm-hmm. They're really acting this way for what? Like just be. Yeah. No, I always talk about this. It's like the thing I drive into the ground, but I love it so much is the fact that nature is so perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, it just works in perfection. You know, it's like every single thing in nature knows its role. It does its role. If it's not in its correct environment, it dies. Like it has to be, Mm -hmm. you know, and yet we put ourselves in the wrong environments all the time. We go against 
our designs, our individual designs all the time. We get sick and die, but we never make the connection between the two. You know, we never understand the importance of of even asking the question of what's your purpose, which is Julie's favorite question. That's so true. <laughs> but you know what? I do think that's so important, you guys, to um, always remember that even if you're the only one, it's not a waste. Like every civilization, not no civilization to date made it to critical mass of consciousness, cooperation, participation. You know, we've we've never eliminated racism so far. Like every single light makes a difference. And we must never forget that. Like maybe the goal isn't every single person participating yet. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Well, I sure love spending time with you guys. Me too. Yeah, thank you both. I enjoyed this. It was really good to get up early. <laughs> this is early <laughs> for me. Well, it was a great conversation. This is a great way for me to start the day. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. And you definitely are one of those lights in the world. So thank you for that, too. Thank you, Pisa. Thank you, Smushi. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time. 